This is Block by Block, a community news program from WPPMLP 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Kathy Brown. And I'm E. Marie Lambert. In the next half hour, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about young people voting for the first time this year, Center City Jazz Fest, and an effort to provide life jackets to children swimming in public pools. First, this spring is the seventh year that the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund is participating in a nationally coordinated effort called the Black Mamas Bailout. Block by Block, Robin Markle reports on its annual event that frees community members from local jails. As Mother's Day approaches, a group in Philadelphia is fundraising to give incarcerated mamas an invaluable gift, freedom. Their work is part of a national campaign to free caretakers who cannot afford their bail. In Philly's court system, when someone is arrested and charged with a crime, a magistrate sets bail and the person must pay at least 10% of the bail in cash to be released, sometimes more. If the person or their family and friends cannot pay, the person will be held in pretrial detention until their court date. People can wait in jail for days, weeks, months, and sometimes years. In Philadelphia, bail can range from $250 to $5 million, meaning people may have to pay between $25 to $50,000 to be released. The Philadelphia Community Bail Fund, or PCBF, pays bail for community members who cannot afford it. I spoke with PCBF support coordinator, Veronica Rex. Why should an individual have to pay for their own freedom? They're being held pre-trial. You haven't even been found guilty for a crime that allegedly you're being accused of. However, you still have to be able to monetary, get yourself out to be home in order to fight your case properly and have the best representation. The theory behind cash bail is that it will guarantee people attend court appearances. This is not backed by data and does not take into account the massive racial wealth gap in the United States as a result of slavery, subsequent white supremacist laws, and violent vigilante acts taken to prevent black Americans from building wealth. In 2020, black households held 4% of the country's wealth, while white households held 84%, according to the Federal Reserve. This gap means there are disproportionate numbers of black and brown people being held in pretrial detention. And because the system is so behind that you could sit in jail anywhere from 30 days to a whole year just waiting to go to court. So I just feel that that's so unfair to people. It's unfair to the family. It's unfair to the children. Most definitely, it's unfair to the children. And that's part of what's hurting our communities because so many families are being broken down. Cash bail does not work for the community of underprivileged individuals, black mamas, non-binary, trans, and the rest of our community. Knowing that the majority of us are not able to free ourselves is as if it's intentionally keeping us behind the walls. In 2017, Mary Hooks, a queer black Southern community organizer, had an idea for an intervention in the cash bail system. 
she proposed coordinated mass bailouts, starting with bailing out Black women and femmes for Mother's Day. She shared the idea with other organizers, and the Black Mamas bailout was born. That spring, groups formed in cities around the country to fundraise for local bailouts. In Philly, that group went on to form PCBF and has continued to bail people out for Mother's Day every year. We have been part of Black Moms Bailout since 2017, and the initiative is to bring home Black mothers that's being held pre-trial detention, being separated from their families and their children, losing part of the foundation, and what we are trying to do is keep the family together. Black Mamas Bailout doesn't limit their support to women in traditional family structures. The way that the Black Mamas Bailout define who's a mother is as a caretaker. So an individual don't just have to be a mother who born a child. If you are a caretaker and taking care of a child or an elderly, sick family member, being male, trans, non-binary, we support. Being held in pretrial detention can catalyze a chain of negative events. According to a 2021 report published by the Pennsylvania chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, after just a few days in jail, a person can lose their job, access to medical care, custody of their children, and even their homes. A 2020 report published by the Philadelphia Bail Fund found that those who remain incarcerated pre-trial due to an inability to pay are more likely to be convicted, receive longer sentences, and are more likely to plead guilty to crimes they did not commit in order to go home. Here in Philadelphia, I feel it's very important that we support and bring home Black mamas because when it comes to losing children, if you're kept in the system after a certain amount of time, your children are automatically adopted out if there's not family member to take these children, which is not fair to the individual. I meet people that has been a part of the system that has come home and have lost children and then not found guilty. Veronica understands these issues firsthand. She was introduced to PCBF when they bailed her out as part of the Black Mama's bailout in 2018. Tragically, her son was killed the night she got out. So the next time I got to see my son was identifying his body at the morgue. Had it not been for the Philadelphia Community Bell Fund bailing me out, I would have not been able to be there to properly put my only son to rest. So forever grateful to the Philadelphia Community Bell Fund. PCBF is raising money through Sunday, May 14th for the Black Mamas Bailout. They've spoken with over 75 caregivers they hope to free this year. To help them do this, people can donate directly or purchase artwork made by formerly incarcerated women at phillybailout.org. That's P-H-I-L-L-Y-B-A-I-L-O-U-T dot org. The Pennsylvania primary is coming up on May 16th, and in Philadelphia, voters will be asked to nominate their choices for mayor, city council, and other citywide offices. For some young people in the city who turned 18 recently, it'll be their first chance to vote in an election. But not everyone who is eligible to vote is planning to head to the polls. 
I spoke with some 18-year-olds at Mastery Charter School Pickett Campus, where I work, to hear their thoughts on voting. But I started out by talking to the teacher to find out how he talks to students about voting. My name is Zach Yelson. I teach government and economics, AP government and politics, and research skills. There's a new election coming up. How have you talked about voting uh, with your students? Voting is something that's embedded all throughout our curriculum. We start with talking about what the role of the citizen is, and the most basic form is voting. I first and foremost help students register to vote. I will have them go through the political parties themselves, maybe take some political typology quizzes to kind of see where they align so that they're not just blindly registering for a specific political party because of something that their parents said or something that they saw in the news, but educating them or at least having them self-identify where they fall on the political spectrum from liberal to conservative, anywhere in between. I would say in terms of voting and elections, the one this year that kind of really piqued students' interest was the Fetterman and um, Dr. Oz election because they saw a lot of the campaign ads. I think the mayoral race is kind of running behind the scenes for students right now. I'm not sure that they're seeing a lot of ads or specific things. Maybe it's because the ads aren't as attacking as they were for the Senate races and for the governor race. Have any students expressed not voting or any uh, reason behind not voting? Political efficacy is something that we talk about a lot. And I think young people especially struggle. Some people either really feel strongly that like their voice matters, like my voice matters and I can't wait to go vote. And there are some that have these deeply ingrained thoughts, whether it's something that they're hearing at home or something that they're hearing on the news or social media about like their vote not mattering. And it takes a lot of unlearning for students to like really hear that and say like, no, we have to show you like how that vote matters. I would say there's probably a solid amount of students that are planning to go vote, but I can't give a percentage, but there's definitely some that still are feeling like a lack of responsiveness of their voice to the government. I think that a lot of them don't necessarily, may not see like the big picture and the idea of what their voice can do just by pushing a button. Right. And I do think that it's a pretty average mindset for young people. And I would say that most people probably don't go out and vote for the first time when they turn 18. A lot of them probably wait until they're in college or off doing something and they see how government policies or laws or taxes mm-hmm. really impact them. Right. And when you're still living under your parents' roof and decisions are made for you, I, I don't think that it really registers right away. Jacob Moses, I will be voting. I'm not really sure on who, because I'm not really too into like the whole entire voting thing. But like, I will be voting now. Why do you think it's important to vote? So I feel like us voting helps us like get a better person or a person that like, we believe will help our community more in office. And speaking of, like the history side of things, I know that like previously like. African-Americans wasn't really like, allowed to vote. Mm-hmm. And like when it was allowed to, they made it like, more difficult. They had to take tests for them to get the opportunity to vote. And what's your name, sir? Dorothman Davis. And are you voting? I think so. I think I want to vote. You think you're going to vote? Yeah. What is the trepidation? Like, so you're not completely sure do you have some reasons for not voting nah it's probably just laziness not like going out to vote for real for real but even so if I do vote I don't even know who I'm voting for 
I'm going to research who I want to vote for because I personally think that people should be able to vote so they can choose who they want to represent their community and whatnot, so they can choose who they want to represent them because a lot of people have similar ideas. If you got an idea of, oh yeah, more jobs for the African-American community or minimum wage need to get higher, then oh, I'm going to vote for this person so they can help in that specific area. My name is Alana Anderson. Me and my family have a lot of discussions and debates about current things that are happening in the world, and we talk a lot about politics. I believe that every vote matters because they do. When the next big election comes, I will definitely be voting. I've been seeing a lot of campaigns on YouTube, on Spotify, on a lot of apps that I use, and I definitely... I'm going to partake in this one. So you're going to be voting for the mayor, the mm -hmm. next mayor of the city. What would you want in a mayor? Like, what are some things that you think that the new mayor should be able to do or should do for the city? Well, for any electoral candidate, I feel like you should have the people's voice in mind because that is what your job is. Your job is to listen to the people and then try your best to make their wishes come true. So for mayor, I would want somebody that can represent where I'm from and understand where I'm coming from and try to make my wishes, my dreams come true. I would say every vote matters because it takes one vote to sway the entire uh, tide. So if you decide not to vote, I'm gonna go to your house, I'm gonna grab you by the arm and we're going to the uh, nearest voting poll. This year, Voters who do head to the polls in Philadelphia will be asked to weigh in on their picks for city council and mayor, as well as other offices, including sheriff, register of wills, and city commissioners. Voters in the primary can only vote for candidates if they're registered for a political party. But there are also four ballot questions that voters can weigh in on, whether they're a member of a party or an independent. One ballot question asks if the city should increase the amount of money it sets aside in its rainy day fund. Another would create a new position for a chief public safety director that would coordinate operations of Philadelphia's police, fire, prisons, and emergency management departments. A third ballot question would allow the Citizens Police Oversight Commission to hire staffers without using the same civil service requirements that apply to many other city workers. And the fourth ballot question asks if Philadelphia's Commerce Department should create a division of workforce solutions. Polls will be open from 7 in the morning until 8 in the evening on Tuesday, May 16th. You can check your voter registration status, find your polling place, and find other information online at vote.pa.gov. You can also meet many of the people running for city council by checking out PhillyCam's Candid Candidate Series. 26 of the candidates answered a series of questions, and you can check out their responses in short videos posted to PhillyCam's YouTube channel. Or tune into PhillyCam's TV station at noon on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. After being shuttered for two years due to the pandemic, the Center City Jazz Festival returned to Philadelphia on April 22nd. Block by Blocks, Roxanne Logan spoke with Jazz Fest organizer 
Ernest Stewart to talk about how this year's festival went and future plans for the scene, the jazz scene in Philadelphia. Stewart is also a trombonist and a South Jersey native. We just wanted to talk to you about the ninth annual Center City Jazz Festival. How did it go? It went well, you know, considering the turnaround time from thinking, well, maybe it can happen this year to actually making it happening. And, you know, the day came where, you know, it's like, okay, it's festival day. You know, I think there might have been two months in between. (laughs) You know, look, I I think we started working on it in February. And by April, we were running the festival. I attended and it seemed like it was a great turnout. What did you think? Yeah, it was it was a great turnout. You know, I think you could plainly say it was really well attended and, you know, the tickets sold out and it was just a madhouse and it was great. It was beautiful to see the uh, musician side of me was extremely excited to see a lot of the musicians that were there. It was almost exhausting the amount of hugs I was giving out to people I haven't seen in years. Um, But it was really exciting to be there. Now, did you get the opportunity to play that night? I played late when everything was all said and done. And it's fun. And I usually wait until the very last set. But yeah, it was great. It was announced that next year the festival would be expanding. Can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. You know, um, in order to make the festival happen this year, I reached out to WRTI and Jazz Philadelphia. And part of the goals was, look, this has to be a stepping stone. Let's use our collective resources to make something good happen here, to change it and make it this new venture for, for all of us. So it's something that it's still, of course, under development, but we're all very excited about it. And we begin taking the necessary steps to get us there. What do you do between jazz festivals? Yeah, so I live in the East Village now. It's been cool having the uh, proximity to Philadelphia that I have living in New York. Um, but between festivals, you know, I'm working full time for a regional arts foundation. And it's been really great to have that and to change my perspective on a lot of things. You know, uh, during the pandemic, I went back to school to get my master's in nonprofit management. So to further that a bit, you know, I got a position over at Mid-Atlantic Arts. And it's, it's really, I think about the arts and my place in the arts and these partnerships that I've established and it's really influenced the way I think about our collective resources and influence. What are some other festivals that you would recommend that people attend throughout the year? Sure. There's um, the New York Winter Jazz Festival, which happens in January. It's very similar to the model that the uh, Center City Jazz Festival has employed, where you get nearby venues and you book shows all within walking distance of each other, all happening at the same time. Um, I would also say D.C. has a great jazz fest, the D.C. Jazz Fest. Brick has a great jazz fest in Brooklyn, B-R-I-C, and that's in the fall. D.C. has a woman in jazz fest. There's a lot of, a lot of it out there. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to interview with us. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate you you calling me about this. I know the festival's done this year, but it's always great to talk about it and start planting the seeds for next year, you know. summer approaches, you might be thinking about heading to the pool or going for a swim in the ocean. One local nonprofit called Rare Jewel is on a mission to make sure everyone stays safe in the water. The organization collects life jackets and gives them to families with young children. I recently sat down with the founder, Jernika Quinones, to find out what set her on this path. Child that goes to swim just sees open water. They don't never see the dangers of it and never think that they can drown in the water. The children are so vibrant and they just want to have fun. So the significance of giving out the life jacket is more importantly to save one young life, just to properly educate the parents on how to properly install the life jacket. How can it keep them afloat in case that they do fall in the water? It at least keeps them above the water and not let them sink into the water where they can't be found if they fall in. Any type of water, whether it's in the ocean, whether it's at a pool, whether it's at home, a lot of people have pools in their backyards. So it's important to teach the children early how to have a life jacket on at all times in open water play. Can you tell us what led you to start this mission? So in July 8th of 2013, me and my family, we have visited a hotel pool and at the hotel pool, my daughter had went missing while we were packing up and getting ready to go at the end of the day. Before going missing, I had gave her a lollipop and she was supposed to be sitting poolside eating the lollipop while I got us all together. In the midst of it all, she had went missing. And when we went looking for her, we couldn't find her. And when we went up to the edge of the pool, she was down at the bottom of the edge of the pool against the wall, but she was actually drowning at this point, but she was unconscious. So, my oldest son jumped in and grabbed her. And when he brought her up out of the water, she woke up for my son running with her. But then she instantly passed out again. The whole time she was trying to gasp for air. And she instantly stopped breathing. And two gentlemen at the poolside, they started CPR, but that wasn't working. So I called the EMS. EMS arrived and they sent her to the hospital where they rushed her to the hospital. And them asking me repeatedly over and over, well, did she have a life jacket on? Did she have a life jacket on? Do you know about life jackets? And of course, at that moment, that's the last thing I want to hear is did my child have a life jacket on, especially that she wasn't even in the water. But um, over the last 10 years now, she has probably had at least 100 admissions to the hospital. After the seventh year of her having a traumatic brain injury, I have said that's enough. Like, I can't bear to see no more what's going on behind the scenes with a traumatic brain injury child. If I can do something to do preventative measures or intervention, then I'll do that. How young should children be wearing life jackets? We actually give out life jackets as early as six months old. 
we'll have donations come in where they have their liberty to just choose life jackets to donate. And they're literally sent life jackets over as early as six months old, sometimes one-year-olds. And how I'll know is because life jackets is not measured by ages, it's measured by pounds. 20 pounds will fit a baby versus a toddler. So I'll move in that way, just matching up the pounds to, to the children. So life jackets are fitted by the pounds. If yes. your child weighs a certain amount, then you know which size life jacket to fit them with. So even if a child complains about it being uncomfortable, parents should not take it off. No matter what they say while they're around the water, you know, the life jacket is not tight. It's not it's going to harm them the whole time that they have it on. So it's best to leave it on while they're around open water play. What would you say to parents as the summer months approach? Children are very fearless and they would jump in without a doubt. My whole thing is don't underestimate your child. And by not underestimating your child, you will have literally helped me save one young life. So where do you get the life jackets from? How do you get them? And then where and how do you distribute them? We actually are a donation-based organization. We ask the community and parents and council and everybody, can they donate at least one life jacket to promote pool safety and awareness? And also, you can always reach the organization at Rare Jewel Nonprofit Organization on Facebook or Rare underscore Jewel 313 on Instagram. On the website, we always ask for U.S. Coast Guard approved life jackets. So these life jackets can be used from pool to ocean. How do you spread awareness about the life jackets and the dangers of not wearing them? Well, I go into the school system educating children on pool safety and awareness, community-based events. Also, too, last summer, I did education and pool safety in the water to a swim club, actually donated for children from a school to come over to a private pool and have swimming going on, and I educated the kids on pool safety and awareness. That was pretty cool, too. Is there anything else that you think parents should know or lifeguards should know or people in general that work at or near a pool? Don't think that your child knows how to swim. Even if your child swim in a pool, don't think that they're going to be able to swim in the ocean because it's two different levels of training to do so. If it wasn't, we wouldn't really need to have people going to training to be U.S. Coast Guards. They can just have took swimming lessons and been able to help people out of the ocean. Also, our body is not made to hold down so much salt. Oceans have salt, so our body is weighed down by the salt. So the younger the child is, the quicker your body is going to become heavy. So when it's time to fight off those currents, your child may not have enough strength to do that, being as though that they're in a body of water, not in the pool. Versus in the pool is just plain old water, H2O, probably a little bit of ingredients, you know, in the water, but that's all. But in the ocean, there's no ending to it. There's currents running. You can't stop the currents from going back and forth or however they want to be in the motion. And 
is quick to lose a child within them current, especially if they don't have a life jacket on. Janika, thank you again for joining us and we wish you more than one life saved this summer and beyond. Block by Block is produced by Felicia Kasher, Roxanne Logan, Robin Markle, Yannick Marie, Laura Rosenbach, and us, Kathy Brown, and E. Marie Lambert. Felicia Kasher is our board operator tonight. Brad Linder is Radio News Managing Editor for WPPM. Peter Liu is Radio Operations Manager. And Allison Durham is WPPM's Radio Program Manager. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of Block by Block, featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region. And you can find past episodes of the show on Philly Camp's SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts.